this, this question is like super interesting, right? Of, you know, kind of, and I talk about this in my, my environmental law class, like what is the scope of environmental law, yeah. right? It's super, super broad. I mean, um, you know, and I actually say this is like, at some level, all law is environmental law. And really, it's, the question is, you're asking is, for a given kind of legal context, what are the environmental implications, right? Contract law is kind of like environmental law. If the contract that you're doing is a coal-fired power plant, or you know, you're setting up a company to do sustainable agriculture in a city, and you're trying to figure out how to do financing, or you are um, you know, doing a trading of renewable energy credits or something like that, which are all kind of commercial contract-y kind of questions. Um, so as a field, it's really, really, really broad. Now, what in a law school you are typically doing when you're kind of teaching environmental law or studying environmental law? Well, that, that actually breaks down to a couple different things. So the two big, you know, kind of categories are natural resource law and pollution control, basically. And then you also have like and then land use, I would kind of classify within natural resources, but you could separate that out and make that its own category if you wanted to. And so those, that's what you're learning a lot of when you're doing environmental law. So, um, and now these days, we also, there's typically a, kind of an energy component as well. So you like think of like the entire regulated system of the energy infrastructure, that's also now kind of environmental law, right? Because it's because there's such a huge nexus between, you know, energy and environment. And so, um, whereas you can have another area that's like a regulatory area, like the Federal Communications Commission, it's not really, you just learn how the FCC is regulated. Or you can learn about immigration law. It's a whole regulatory system, but it's like distinct from environmental law, obviously. Whereas with energy, it's such a, there's such an inter, you know, that they're just kind of learning about, say, how prices are set for energy is important if you want to, if you care about, you know, climate change, right? So, like, learning about the regulatory apparatus, how, is, how does transmission work, you know, how, do, how are, you know, these actors regulated or whatever. Those are, um, you know, those are environmental questions now. So, yeah, so I think that's, it, so, so it's interesting, right? So if your primary interest is in, say, like, urban agriculture, right? And what, well, so one question would be, why do you want to go to law school? Right, that's what, a, a good question. So why do you want to go to law school? Um, I want to go to law school because I feel like some of um, like the changes that I want to make, like I want to make um, or help make the food system more equitable and just, mm -hmm. and I feel like in order to do that, I need to understand the laws and understand the system and um, have the, ability if I want to to go into um, like litigation or um, like contracts like be able to take it to the next level like mm -hmm. I've been a farmer and kind of worked at that side of the food system and now I want to move into something a little bit more um, like policy or right. mm -hmm. um, kind of like the bigger picture mm -hmm. scope. So there's right. So and basically they're like and so and just why, I'll ask you the same question. So why what are your kind of environmental interests and why are you oh um, law school and that kind of stuff? So to try and make a fairly complicated thing short and hopefully articulate <laughs> it decently well. Um, so I'm a 
I think JD MBA candidate, and mm-hmm. my interest is basic. Is I worked for a think tank that worked on like major global issues. Mm-hmm. I have an interest in several of those, and so to some degree, currently the Quixotic mission is to somehow be helpful in like dealing with climate change mm-hmm. or dealing with some international development trade issues or that kind of thing. And so obviously that touches on a lot of different areas of law. And so part of honestly why I'm here is trying to figure out like um, to what degree would it make sense to try and either do like environmental law focus while I'm in law school mm-hmm. or is it just taking you know several classes on the side? Is that something you can do on the side or is that at like a full-time commitment? Right, right. Great. So these are all, yeah. these are all great questions. So yeah, so um, and you, this kind of these are related to each other, I think, a little bit too, right? Because these are both somewhat non-traditional, not like, if you think of like the super traditional environmental law job, like what comes to mind, right? So it would, I would say probably would be working at the like Sierra Club or Earth Justice or something, and you're trying to either influence legislation or you're doing impact, you're trying to like stop a uh, drilling from, you know, happening in, you know, uh, offshore in the Chukchi Sea off the coast of Alaska. That would be like one kind of job, doing environmental enforcement at the, um, Department of Justice, you know, enforcing the, the environmental laws. And then on the private side, like working for a company doing like compliance, like helping them like understand what the environmental laws are and what they need to do to comply. Um, okay, so those would be like some standard career paths. And, um, you know, and the reality is that to some extent, the traditional environmental law curriculum is structured around, you know, gearing people up for those relatively um, uh, traditional career paths. Um, and so we have classes in pollution control. We have classes in re- natural re- in resource management. We have um, classes in land use. So like if you work at a firm and you work with companies and they do real estate transactions and they have to deal with land use and they're going to build or whatever, right? Um, okay. So, so we have that kind of stuff. And, that, and the clinic is a little oriented in that direction too, right? So it's, a, it's, a kind of a, it's an environmental law and regulatory uh, clinic. Um, you know, they work on lots of things, but for example, litigating around like a uranium mine or um, participating in a regulatory proceeding to make it easier for a solar facility to get its license and sell credits or whatever. So that's like what, you know, the clinic does, right? It is interesting to think about if you're in, okay, so then just one more kind of step back. Um, well, and then we just take the there's kind of two things I want to say. So one is food law is like it's becoming its own thing. So there's now like food law casebooks, and um, we don't actually have a food law course. Um, we have an animal uh, welfare course. I can imagine us actually getting a food law course at some point. Uh, yeah, you could be, you could, you could agitate for a food law class, and. Uh, one thing you know when you do have something that you're really interested in. Of course, like at law school is, in general, is general is, is generalist in a way, right? You take the first year curriculum, you come in, you're like, I want to do, you know, let's say sustainable agriculture. Well, what does this have to do with torts? Well, you're going to take torts, or criminal law for that matter, right? And and that might seem frustrating, actually, um, which, which I can understand. It's interesting, right? Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and it's also like the reason that law schools do this is it creates like a kind of a canon of like established ideas that are used in a variety of different ways in different areas um, that, um, you know, that is kind of the, the foundations of the law. Basically, it kind of creates like the building blocks that then get used, used in lots of different ways. So for example, actually I just taught a class, this, um, a course, or sorry, a class on um, Supreme Court case recently. 
or just like two days ago, um, that had to do with the um, the extent of the um, restrictions on private conduct um, that are included in the Endangered Species Act. And in one of the opinions, they draw from a tort law concept in order to kind of uh, understand the Endangered Species Act. Right? So these, it's important to like have access to these ideas because they really you know, kind of extend out to lots of different areas. Um, and so, you know, having a generalist legal education is kind of the first step, right? It's not really like when you come to law school, I don't think it's a good idea at least, and it's not like the way we kind of do things around here, that you then focus and say, I'm only going to do environmental law, right? We don't even teach enough, I mean, maybe we teach enough classes that you could do that if you really were hell-bent on doing it, but it's not advised. Um, because what you want to do is you want to have that good generalist education and then also and be like a good lawyer, right, or at least be prepped to be a good lawyer, and then, you know, um, have some courses that you've taken on the stuff that you're particularly interested in, and there are kind of additional opportunities to really dive deep into things, which I also think it's a good idea, in addition to the generalist thing, to pick a couple of things to dive into um, that you're interested in, because that will also allow you to have a lens that um, can help you um, kind of pull together the other areas of law, too. And so how do you dive into an area? Say, say you're interested in food law, right? Or you're interested in, say, um, uh, developing you know, environmental law in developing yeah. countries or something, and the intersection of law and development, right? Mm -hmm. Environmental law and development, let's just say that, right? So we don't have a class on that either. But in theory, you could have a class on it. It's interesting, right? And if it was you know, a big enough institution, they might have that. But the problem, I think, the kind of the downside of that is then you can end up just doing your thing that you're interested in, right? So say you're interested in um, food law, you're interested in environmental law and development. Well, how do you kind of pursue those interests while getting your general degree? So we have various opportunities to do that too. Um, so you can do directed research with a faculty member. So I supervise these all the time. Um, it's basically like independent uh, study. Yep, yep, you get credit for that. Um, 2L, yeah, I think that's right. I don't think one else traditionally do it. And you can get actually a fair amount of independent study credit. So I supervise students for like year-long projects that result in like a you know like a forty-page paper. You really get into the stuff. I've actually independent one independent study that I did supervised a research project that kind of turned into an article that I wrote with a student. Um, and so so that's one way you can really get into something. And those can actually be lots of different things. They can be like an academic research project. That's definitely like one form that an independent study could take. But if you say, for example, wanted to spend uh, a year and get a bunch of credits to examine, um, you know, like come up with like a proposal or something for like a state government to adopt some, you know, statute that would help, you know, um, improve the, the food system, that could totally be a project. You could actually, and the output could be, you know, like a report that explained like what some problems were and then how they could be addressed through public policy, either statutory or regulatory or whatever, right? And so that could be like a research project that you did. Um, there's also the environmental law journal. So that's an opportunity to engage in, you know, scholarship. You help select the articles, you work on articles. Um, you have some say over what articles you work on. So that's an opportunity to kind of learn something about a special issue. And then again, a lot of students will produce like a, what's called a student note. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that, but it's basically like I write law review articles and then student notes are kind of small versions of that. So it's a way, again, of like, you know, doing scholarship, doing research, learning about some legal issue or some policy issue that you're interested in and writing something about it. Um, so, so those are all kind of 
opportunities or ways to kind of drill down into um, things that you're particularly interested in. Another example, actually, is um, so I teach uh, a regulatory law and policy class. So I teach environmental law survey class that covers like the big pollution control statutes, basically, uh, plus the Endangered Species Act. I teach an administrative law class, which is really about the interaction of agencies and courts and the legislature. So it has it really matters for environmental law, but it's not just environmental law. And then I teach a class on regulatory law and policy. And in that class, it's all about how uh, administrative agencies, you know, um, at this, we focus at the federal level, but it's the same deal at the state level, how they kind of make decisions given their broad grants of discretionary authority that they have. So how does the EPA decide where to set pollution control limits? How does um, the, uh, the Agriculture Department decide how to, you know, do its subsidies? How does um, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, is now regulating drones? Like, how should they regulate drones? So this question is, how should they make those decisions? And it's about economics and science and kind of politics and how all those kind of different things inform agency decision making. It's called regulatory law and policy. I recommend that class. It's a good class. I designed it with the Course Design Institute here at the University of Virginia that kind of takes like new ideas about teaching and learning um, and helps professors implement those in the classroom. So I spent like a week designing this class and all this input from, from this center. So, um, so it's actually kind of, I think, kind of a fun class. But one of the uh, kind of core features of this class is students work in groups and they identify a regulatory proceeding that they're interested in and then they do like a big analysis, like a 15-page, you know, kind of in-depth analysis of the legal context and the political context and the policy questions that are implicated. And they, and they pick it. They can literally be anything as long as it's like interesting enough that they can write enough about it. And then they can do that. And then the final project for the class that the students do individually is they do a set of public comments to an agency that explains like, you know, basically like says you did a bad job or you did a good job and here are things you could change, basically a set of recommendations for an agency. And the students can, if they want, actually submit those into um, a actual regulatory proceeding. So that, that has happened, students do that. So just to give an example of some um, projects that students this year and last year worked on. Um, nutrition is a big one. So there was a, a couple of um, proceedings last year at the end of the Obama administration dealing with nutrition labeling. So defining natural was actually a thing. Like when you say like that water says all natural on it, like what does that mean? It has organic, yeah, um, paleo friendly. Uh, right, there's lots of things that stuff says on it. And like some of it doesn't mean anything. So I could, I could literally put out a bag of sugar and say that that is paleo friendly, even though that is the least paleo friendly that you can possibly imagine. Um, but I can't say it's organic unless it meets certain it's actually true that you can't say it's natural unless it meets certain requirements, although those requirements don't necessarily comport with people's intuitions about what natural means. It's very, so it's interesting. So it's a, they're going to define what natural means, and it's going to actually mean, you know, it's gonna, they're going to potentially change it. And so we had students submit comments on that question. The regular nutrition label went through, you know, the thing that just says calories or whatever, <clears throat> went through a revision. We had students. Yeah, about some, wrote something about this. Yeah, they may have taken their comments and turned it into a note, actually. Um, then there is um, uh, students, another project was lead in drinking water. There's a proceeding on lead in drinking water. Obviously, the Flint, Michigan thing was, you know, kind of propelled that a little bit. 
Uh, students this semester are working on the drone thing. Endanger, uh, there's a spe species of bee that uh, was listed by the Obama administration as endangered, which the Trump administration is now saying, whoa, we don't, you know, they're not, they're like kind of putting the brakes on that. So they're working on that. So it's actually like, that's another kind of context where in that case, you're really free to choose. I mean, you have to work with your team so that you're assigned to a group. And so you have to convince them that your stuff is interesting. But if you find something that's of mutual interest, um, you know, then you can like spend the semester working on something that you kind of really take a deep dive into uh, learning about. And it's like, um, you know, kind of a live thing that's happening and you can actually have an impact. Yeah. I mean, obviously, political implications of figuring out, like, it's probably not about the bee. It's probably about where this bee lives. Go I don't know farmers, the case, but, yeah, yeah there's absolutely. probably some interest in it. That's really interesting. I'm sorry. Yeah. How do you go about doing those projects? Like, well, it's part of it. It's in a class. So it's called the Regulatory Law and Policy oh, class. Yeah, it's this part of that class. And so the way it works is um, the, the um, students are divided into teams as part of that class. And then, like, the way a traditional class, a typical class session will go is I'll spend part of the time, an hour, say an hour, 20-minute class, hour or so, just readings and there's stuff we're learning. So we'll talk about that stuff. It's going to do discussion. And then there'll be 20 minutes and the teams will meet and they'll talk about, like, you know, what research they're doing. Or they have to pick the issue and then they are doing research and working together to compile this document that's called the rule analysis that is... Um, you know, like this basically backgrounder that, you know, legal context, political context, economics, or whatever. And then that's the kind of big group project. And then after that, um, the final project that all students um, submit is the set of public comments. Yep, so it's kind of integrated into the class. Yep. Um, yeah. So I think we actually covered a lot of the stuff um, that I was going to talk about anyway. So that's good. Um, do you guys have other, I mean, maybe I could just mention the, the faculty. I don't, you know, we've got several environmental law faculty. It's a really important thing to keep in mind. Um, you know, what I encourage folks to do when you're, if you're just kind of deciding between law schools is to look for faculty that you're interested in working with because that's like the most important thing. Um, the most important things are like your peers and the faculty basically. So, um, so identifying faculty that you kind of, their interests intersect with your interests is probably like, um, yeah, so do you guys have other questions that I kind of get to? So yeah. How do you attend each of the environmental law classes? Do you attend other classes? Mm -hmm. Or I'm not taking the size of the complaint. Right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> wondering, like, yeah. You know, so, yeah, so actually, in the last information session, which I tell, I'm telling you, it was overflowing in here. Right. Is. Um, like what percentage of students have an interest in environmental law? Yeah. You know, that's kind of an interesting question. So I would say, I think I said there, like 15%. So out of our students, it'd be about 45 students. I think that, that might be a little low. But that for me, that was the people who are like pretty hardcore interested in environmental law. We'll take a bunch, several environmental law classes, maybe write a note about environmental law, be on the journal, be on the, um, some of the clubs, that kind of thing. And then there's a bigger group who have like some interest in the environment. But maybe they'll take a, a class, but they're not going to really focus on it. So I think that's a good critical mass. Um, you know, we have, um, you know, so we have enough to have like a real program. We have enough students. We have several faculty. We have a clinic. We kind of have like the pieces that you need to have a program. Now, there are other law schools that do have bigger environmental programs. I think there's pros and cons to that. 
So I think, you know, as I mentioned, it's important to get a good generalist legal education. And so I think one kind of downside of having a really big, you know, say you have like 20 environmental law, or more environmental law classes and more clinics and whatever. Uh, yeah, just like bigger schools typically, right? Just places that have like, I don't know, you know, more, you know, bigger you know, programs, um, bigger, more students basically. Yeah, more of everything. Or you can imagine like, a, uh, like Lewis and Clark or Pace, those schools that are like really devoted to environmental law. Um, and they have like a ton of courses, right? They'll have like a you know, course on like a specific statute that I'll like spend just a few days on. Um, but you know, there's pros and cons to that. Because again, it's nice in a sense because you can spend all your time doing environmental law, but you're not necessarily getting that kind of broad um, generalist education. So I like that, you know, the size of our program. Uh, we have enough, again, we, I've got colleagues that I can work with. We've got students who are interested in this stuff. You will have peers. But, um, you know, I don't just get so focused in the environmental law stuff that I, you know, lose sight of all other areas of law or, you know, the kind of more general intellectual conversation. So I, I think that that's, that's a good thing. Um, and, of course, it is the case that environmental law as a kind of specialty is smaller than others, right? So, like, uh, CRIM, we have a, you know, we have more CRIM faculty. Um, and that's because criminal law is a much bigger area of law than environmental law. That's just a fact, right? More people are employed doing criminal law. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of prosecutors out there. There's a lot of defense attorneys out there. Um, it's just a bigger area of law. Um, same with, um, say, you know, corporate business law. Business law is a rather large, I mean, it's like the entire economy, basically, right? And so I would actually say, if anything, relative to its actual portion of the law market, environmental law tends to have like more students and more interest because people, you know, they're interested in it. It's like constitutional law. People are interested yeah. in First Amendment law even though there's not like a ton of practicing attorneys. Yep. Okay. Um, I guess, how much does animal intersect with environmental law at this school? So there's some. Uh, we have an uh, animal law people. So we have um, Nini Riley teaches a, uh, an animal law class. The, and the main intersection with environmental law is through kind of conservation and like the Endangered Species Act, right? So you, plus like the pollution control element that's associated with agriculture. So there's some, I mean, CAFAs are regulated by the Clean Water Act and we deal with the Clean Water, and we talk about the Clean Water Act. Um, but, you know, like tons of industries are regulated by the Clean Water Act, you know, and so, um, the way I treat it is just, it's another example of an industry that's regulated by the Clean Water Act. And so you, what you're learning when you learn the Clean Water Act is like how the permitting system works and you know, how the power is allocated between the state and the national government and what the jurisdiction is. And then it's almost kind of like this just applies to like lots of different actors out there. It could be uh, 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 agriculture, it could be um, a chemical manufacturer, it could be, you know, a mine or whatever, right? They're all lots and lots of different actors. So you could spend a lot of time talking about mines, for example, right? But, um, but it really is an instance of the broader kind of question of how you regulate water. Now, agriculture is a special case um, in the Clean Water Act. So we do spend some time talking about agriculture because it's like unusual how it's so. Um, so there's, um, the way the Clean Water Act works is that um, there's a particular um, 
set of requirements that are set up for what are called point sources. And then there's a different set of requirements, and the whole structure is very different for non-point sources, which is everybody else. Point source, canonically, is like a pipe. Right? So you just think of a stream and a pipe that goes in the stream, and then bad stuff comes out of the pipe. Well, agriculture doesn't work that way. Right? They don't have a point source, like a pipe. They have just runoff of like their fields that will go into a, um, go into a stream, for example. And so they're non-point sources. And there's a range of kind of difficult, so for one thing, the law just treats non-point sources differently. And then there's like kind of hard questions about what the best way to manage non-point sources are. So it turns out we've gotten pretty good at regulating point sources, just in terms of you know, we've cut down pollution there. There's some pollution that comes from point sources, but it's managed um, at least. Whereas non-point sources, still, you know, the law has not figured out a good way to deal with non-point sources. Uh, CAFOs are a little different because they can be treated kind of like point sources because they're so concentrated. Um, so, and then you have the endangered, and then you have like conservation and endangered species, right? And that's, that intersects with animal law, but it's different from the farm stuff, right? So you can think of, an, I mean, obviously animals can be divided up into domesticated animals and then wild animals, and so obviously endangered species act more focus on animals in their natural habitat, um, which, I think a traditional animal law class might talk about some, but they're more oriented, I think, towards animal welfare in a domesticated setting, right? And so, um, which we don't really cover that stuff in environmental law, in part because it's covered by animal law, but also it's a kind of a different, the question of animal welfare is one that you can think of in the context of environmental law, for sure, um, and it's kind of interesting, to, so we talk about some of those issues, um, and there, so they can be implicated by like uh, environmental law regimes, but you know, say a um, a statute that deals with humane treatment of farm animals or something like that, it's not normally thought of as an environmental law statute. Although you know, these dividing lines are somewhat arbitrary too. But just traditionally, that's kind of how it works. Um, but when you talk about the Endangered Species Act, you might ask, well, why? And we do, we talk about some of this stuff, like why do you care about species? You know, is it because you care about individual animals and their well-being, or is there some other reason? Like what's the kind of overarching rationale for, you know, this entire system of protecting this entity that we can talk about as a species? And that's very different from like a statute that protects the welfare of individual animals, which would be like a, you know, like a humane treatment kind of um, regime. So, um, so we talk about it, but mostly for purposes of, um, you know, clarifying the distinctions actually at some level um, between, you know, like the Endangered Species Act versus some of these other um, regulatory systems. Is there a class on endangered species or on? So I teach endangered species in my overall survey class, and then we have um, um, kind of advanced classes in natural resources. Uh, which they will kind of get in more detail into endangered species work. Because endangered species, um, and it's one of the interesting things about environmental law is that it starts off and it's all very like, it's a little touchy-feely. You're like, oh, we want to save the bears or whatever. And then it's like, it gets super technical and yeah. super detailed really, really, really fast. Um, and so you could spend, I mean, people, you make, can make a career out of, um, you know, litigating endangered species protections and listing you know, there's a whole regulatory process, and um, it's interesting the way that these, you know, kind of 
sentiments, you know, these kind of political ideals get translated, you know, through law into these very technical kind of decision-making processes. So, um, all right, guys. Well, if you have any um, questions or, you know, any follow-up, um, let me know. You feel free to send me an email. We can talk on the phone. Or... Are you with your Jonathan or Mike? I'm Mike. Mike Livermore, yeah. Jonathan is